Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Coming up on this week's show, remakes of House of the Dead and GoldenEye 007. How Amstrad rejected Bill Gates. And we talk home arcade ports with author David Craddock. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 195. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And aren't we sounding healthy? Considering we were at Amiga Germany last weekend, Ravi. <laughs> yeah, well, we're actually going to fly off. We're just recording this ahead. <laughs> that is how prepared we are for what is said to be a large weekend. Now, if you're listening to this and you were there, I'm sure you've seen the videos of vlogs. You've uh, probably seen the, the embarrassing there. dances. Yeah, <laughs> probably mainly by me. If you did come along, hope you had a wonderful time. We did think it wise maybe to get two shows in the bag before we went, so yeah. we are recording this in advance. So if you did come along to Amiga Germany and we met you there. I'm sure it was lovely to meet you. But if you haven't come along to see the Retro Hour live at any point in 2019, we were thinking the other day how many events we've done and how many different countries. I mean, we started the year in Ireland, and then I went to Poland, Pixel Heaven, Retro Spill Messen in Norway, a couple of play expos at the start of the summer too. We did obviously the event in Nottingham last weekend. We've been all over. Yeah, it's it's crazy when you put it like that. I, I can't think that we've been to this many events, but actually we're doing one in your old stomping ground, which is in the countryside. So this is going to be the first kind of (laughs) rural event that we've done. Yeah, now this is going to be happening in the lovely little town of Thursk in North Yorkshire. And this is a really cool event, actually. I think it's the first one they've done. This is called the Podcast Social Club. Now, this is going to be happening on Friday the 23rd and Saturday the 24th of November at the Rural Arts Centre in Thursk. Now, the idea is, and this is a really cool concept, that you become part of the live audience during the recording of many of your favourite podcasts, and maybe some that you haven't heard before, but you want to check out. Now, we talk from experience, you know, having done live shows for like four years now. There is just something about doing it in front of people, actual people in front of you, and having conversation and interacting with real like-minded people. It's really cool. Yeah, and there's loads of podcasts here. Like, Milk the Cow is one of my favourite podcasts. So, like, if you guys come along, you can also see other guys. Yeah, because there's going to be... Essentially, there could be as many as three podcasts happening all at the same time. So there's going to be nine different slots in three different rooms. And the idea is you kind of pick and choose which podcasts you want to see, and you kind of book them individually. So you could come along, you could pick one or two, or you could watch them all all day. And between them, there's going to be food, drink... We'll all be hanging out, having a bit of a chat. And, I mean, North Yorkshire, it's a lovely part of the world as well, if you haven't been up there. So, I mean, it's worth a couple of days away and, you know, taking a bit of the North Yorkshire countryside too. So, all you have to do, if you want to come along, um, I'll put a link in our show notes, but the website is podcastsocialclub.com. We're going to be there on the Saturday afternoon, 23rd of November, from 4.30 until 5.30pm. Now, all you have to do is nip onto their website. It'll cost you £5 plus your booking fee. Very reasonable. We actually already know quite a big crew are coming down to this, don't we? Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be good. We can all hook up for a drink and have a good laugh in the country. So if you want to be there, it's only about a month away now. All the details for Podcast Social Club and the booking link on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, this week, we've got a really interesting guest, and it might be a name that sounds a bit familiar because we had him on probably about a year ago. Yeah, so we had David Craddock on before. He was doing his book on rock called Rocket Jump, which yeah. was kind of all about the history of FPS. Now, 
This time he's doing a book called Arcade Perfect and Arcade Perfect is kind of all about how they took those arcade games and then they did home ports and this discussion is really going to be about like, you know, some of the absolute stinkers that you got. (laughs) But also, interestingly, how the arcade scene's changed, how it's developed over time. So you remember back in the day, when you had your Mega Drive at home, you always wanted the games to be as good as they were in the arcade. That was always a mission, wasn't it? Yeah. And, you know, some of them were close. Some of them did it better than others. Do you have any examples you remember? Um, Oh, God. Mortal Kombat ones always come come to mind as being pretty close to what was in the arcade. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, there was some real, real stinkers. I'm just trying to think of some off the top of my head right now. I was always fooled by the screenshots, you know. They always put (laughs) arcade screenshots on and then then I put it in my machine and be like, God. Yeah, I think (laughs) Pac-Man. It's yeah. a big one, you know. The Atari 2600, the Atari 2600 version. version. Yeah. More wise advertising that one, if you remember. <laughs> yeah. Renowned for being terrible compared to the arcade. So, but yeah. again, I mean, when we're talking to David, he's actually talked talk a lot of these developers behind these games mm. and found out why they were the way they were. Yeah. A lot of it was obviously rushed jobs. The companies had no quality control. Yeah. So it's a really interesting chat, actually. The book is called Arcade Perfect, How Pac-Man, Mortal Kombat, and Other Corn-Up Classics Invaded the Living Room. So we're chatting to David L. Craddock on the Retro Hour podcast in a around 20 minutes from now. Now, of course, we couldn't get to all the events that we do. We couldn't even come in here and record this podcast for you every single week. We couldn't spend all that time researching the retro gaming news, finding these guests without your support. Now, every week on the show, we roll out the red carpet and welcoming people to the Hall of Fame. Now, to get the Hall of Fame, dead easy, isn't it, Revy? Yeah, you just go to theretrohour.com, click supporters, and you can make a donation via PayPal, any currency, and, you know, all the money that we raise will go back into the show. Absolutely. So simple as that. Any amount you donate, we'll give you a shout in a future episode. Just like this week... John Martirano. Greg Girk. Kyle McManus. And Darren Lomax. Who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, dead easy, nip onto our website, like Ravi said, theretrohour.com. Click on the support link or buy a PayPal straight from your phone. PayPal at theretrohour.com. Now, the Apple II is a machine that we always hear a hell of a lot about, especially when we talk to American developers. A lot of them started on the Apple II. Not a system I was all that familiar with back in the day, but I know it's got a really loyal following. And if your Apple II is looking a little bit shabby these days... Maybe a bit brittle as yeah, well because of the plastic. plastic yeah. Yeah. But now you can spruce it up. Yeah, so there's a new company. Well, it's, it's actually... They've previously had a case that they've created they're called mac effects right and they created a case for the se30 i i don't know nothing about that machine but i'm sure mac experts would and you know they're offering a brand new apple II case and it's at a kickstarter at the moment and as we're recording this i'm sure it's probably fifteen thousand three hundred and eighty four dollars so far. yeah it's probably going to go up after that of a pledge target of twenty three thousand pounds all right and how long's left on it at the time of recording? uh we've got 21 days oh, left on the time they're gonna recording. breeze it yeah i'm sure so, and the thing is this is not a duplicate design this is a brand new artistic kind mm. of interpretation of it but you know it's got all the extra stuff uh that's gonna help it not cause yellowing it's it's a transparent case, <laughs> yeah. which is really pretty cool, actually. So you can see all your bits inside. And, you know, this is a 42-year-old computer. So God. I find it's amazing. A case that's just actually coming out for that and that's getting funded. Well, getting on its way to being funded. You know, I've always loved that. I've always loved transparent electronics. 
I used to have a phone in my bedroom as a kid that lit up and you could see through it. And I always loved looking at the chips and stuff. You, inside. you just need to put I some had, LEDs in I had in the there. see-through Game Boy idea. Yeah. So, yeah, I loved but, it. Do you remember when Apple, though, when they brought the iMacs out and stuff, like the early 2000s, the Bondi iMac and stuff, yeah. you could see through the back of them and yeah, see the way. Yeah. So yeah. you don't see enough of anymore, you know. Especially for us nerds who like to see how things work. We want our frosted plastic back. Yeah. <laughs> Clear frosted plastic. It's got to be due to come back now, <laughs> 20 years on. And I think what's good as well is, as a kid who used to open up every electronic device in the house <laughs> and usually couldn't get it back together, the curiosity is fulfilled just by looking through the case. So. You'd yeah. still take it apart. And you I know, would. and you know, we think our Amigas get like brittle and broken with the time. But yeah. come on, forty-two years. Yeah. <laughs> this is double the edge of your Amiga yeah, twelve hundred. Needed. It? Yeah. So, and actually, they're offering them at a decent price. I mean, one hundred and ninety-five dollars. So, I mean, for a custom-made case, you know, for a machine that old, that are collector's items now. I think that's really good. So if you want to find out more about that, maybe get it back on Kickstarter while you can. I'll put the details in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, when we opened the show notes in the studio a couple of minutes ago, Joe instantly went <laughs> and clicked on one of the links in there. You're one of your favourite games. Yeah. It's been remade. House of the Dead is apparently being remade. So well, I think Ravi knows a little bit more about yeah, this. Yeah, so it's a Polish website. Okay. And they've kind of put a claim through saying that Forever Entertainment, so it's unverified claim, uh, may, okay. may publish... Remakes. Uh, but, you know, they're doing the uh, remake of Panzer Dragoon at the moment. Yeah, I've heard about that, yeah. So this one doesn't actually seem that far off. But okay. The, the, the question is, like, are they going to use the kind of light gun technology? What are they going to use? Because there is this beautiful light gun, the Cinder light gun. Yeah, it was using this new technology that looked really impressive. I don't know if you saw <laughs> uh, the Kickstarter or Retro Man Caves. Video and they're saying, you know, with PC version, they're gonna possibly have it with a mouse, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, you know, you could use those Wiimote thingies, but I think with this Cinder Light Gun House of the Dead with a bit of recoil, that's what you uh, yeah, need. You know, yeah, I used to yeah. love it in the arcade. See, I'm all about typing of the dead. <laughs> typing of the dead, yeah, that, that was a really interesting. There's an game old as video well. knocking about somewhere. <laughs> Dan filming me playing Typing the Dead and I'm just failing miserably. <laughs> well, I, so I, Joe was right, this must have been about seven, eight years ago yeah, probably. Yeah, eight years ago, yeah. And we're playing on my Dreamcast and I, I put my keyboard out. It's actually a German layout keyboard though. <laughs> so it wasn't even QWERTY, it was QUADS at the top. So yeah, he did well considering. That's what confused me. <laughs> we kind of talk about this in this interview yeah. with David and we say, you know, these light gun games and these arcade games, they're kind of a missing genre nowadays mm, because... Yeah. I found, you know, you use a lot of light gun technology now, even the aim tracks that are used for PC, and there's still a little bit of a drag. Mm. You know, it never feels like it did with the CRTs. Yeah, and that's the thing, light gun games are kind of a bit of a lost lost genre. I mean, you get the, the older ones in arcades, but... Yeah, like Virtua Cop and all of yeah. that, I, I love those games. And whenever we go to like Play Expo or anything, and especially you, Joe, you're on them all day. Yeah, light gun all game. day, all day. House of the Dad. I'll be there. Yeah, so if it gets remade, then I'm sure you'll be the first to let us know about it, Joe. Yeah, yeah. We'll keep an eye on that and everything else we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, at the moment, obviously, the nights are getting longer here in the UK at the moment. The weather's getting a bit colder. And back on telly at the moment, The Apprentice is back on, I noticed. Yes, yeah, so um, The Express, strangely, have actually uncovered an article from 2008, which was talking about how Microsoft tried to approach Mr. Sugar, well, Lord Alan Sugar, yeah. actually now, uh, who ran Amstrad. 
And um, <laughs> it's quite funny, actually. It was Bill Gates trying to strike a deal with Alan Sugar. And Alan Sugar first calls him a mid-Atlantic smoothie. <laughs> I've never heard Bill Gates been called a smoothie before. That is yeah. rich from coming from a man who looks like a Yorkshire pudding. <laughs> and he, he basically... <laughs> he basically said um, Bill Gates kept coming round to his house... And, and saying to him to buy windows for his system because he had Dr. Doss, which was his old kind of system, going on. And he said, uh, we are a consumer electronics manufacturer. We're not much geeks and we don't really give a beep. Because Amstrad, I mean, they really, after the CPC and stuff, they captured the market with those word processors, didn't they? Yeah, later on they did yeah. a huge deal with Microsoft. But initially he says... Bill Gates was constantly coming around each day to the Amstrad offices, uh, leading us to eventually get a deal. But initially, they really didn't care, and they were just trying to get rid of Bill Gates. They were like, we're fine with this. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine Bill Gates knocking on your door being like an annoying salesman, like, go away, leave us alone. That's actually really interesting. It's like Amstrad, obviously, I know there were like a pretty big deal, but you wouldn't think there'd be that much on the radar of a major American corporation. No, but like then Microsoft. he said he managed to strike a deal much later on where he got yeah. it for a reduced cost. Yeah, well, so that's Al- Mr. Alan's techniques <laughs> must have worked there, yeah. Treat them mean, keep them keen, as the old saying, I think, is. Now let's move on to another one of your favourite games, Joe. It's like Christmas for you this episode, it isn't is, it? It is, yeah. Another one of your all-time favourites. Another like one that we that. ironically play at Christmas every yeah. year as well. <laughs> God, it's near that time of year again, isn't it? GoldenEye 007... The Nintendo 64 Classic is getting a remake on the Unreal Engine 4. And I think this looks pretty hot. So is this, what is this? Is this official? Is this fan-made? Is this... This is fan-made. It'll be fan-made because it's on on like the open source engine, Unreal. But David Doke has seen it and he thinks it's really cool. Oh, yeah. 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 So, you know, it's kind of got the endorsement from uh, one of the guys behind it. So what they've done is, I mean, at the moment, we're kind of looking forward to, and I know this sounds like way off in the future... 2022, when GoldenEye will celebrate its 25th anniversary. It's crazy. Which is like, what, just over two years away now. And for this, a fan has actually updated the visuals of this game. And at the moment, there's a little preview video that I'll put in our show notes showing a shiny new version of the silo map. And then it kind of takes us through the satellite room in there as well. And it brings a game in the 21st century. Full HD graphics, new visuals, textures, new sound effects and stuff on it too. I think this looks really good. It looks really cool. It's got a real look of time splitters to it. Mm, I yeah. think. But didn't am I right in thinking that some of the people who worked on yeah. Time Splitters the same team who worked on, yeah, on Golden Eye? So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that kind of makes sense. But yeah, it's it looks cool. It does look really, really cool, but there's I don't know. It kind of reminds me of Doom Free as well. You know what it is? It's probably because, like, you know, they probably haven't been able to convert all the textures. Or they're yeah. maybe using default ones because it's a fun game. Yeah. And, and it's so, work like, in progress. Yeah. It's two years yeah. away, yeah, from yeah, release. it's yeah. work in progress. But, yeah, definitely, uh, I would be playing this all night if you gave me this, yeah. you know. So this does look pretty cool. And I love the fact that David Doak said, you know, he's really enthusiastic yeah. about it. He's like, that's pretty awesome. I mean, the game is apparently going to be free. Really? So when it comes out, they reckon by 2022. So okay. I mean, it might be then or it might be before. Um, but that that is awesome that, you know, I just love it when these classic games get updated by fans. The mm. fact that fans can do a job this good, a project that would have taken a massive team of people to do. 
back in the day. The fact that one guy in his bedroom now can do something. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. Goldeneye is probably one of the games because the company's really nice that Nintendo don't. If you make a new version, you know, I think this will stay up for a while. Yeah, well, it was rare, wasn't it? So, I mean, Microsoft yeah, yeah. technically owned the uh, the copyrights to it, I Ooh. guess. Yeah, so, I mean, Sega would be like, yeah, it's fine. Microsoft, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, again, it's one of these games that fans have been crying out for a modern-day update, and no one else has done it. Mm. So it gets to the stage where fans are like, well, if you're not going to do it, we'll do it ourselves. And then it would be, I mean, what bad PR Microsoft would get if they came along and took this down and then never bothered to make their own. Doesn't bother Nintendo. Yeah, well, it's nothing really to do with them, is it? It's. But I mean, when they do it in the past. Oh, but I mean, yeah, it stops them. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, Nintendo would just like that, aren't they? Yeah. But I mean, maybe Microsoft would come along, and make him an offer, and buy it off him. That'd be pretty cool. That would I mean, be very should. cool. Absolutely. Buy it off him to bury it. <laughs> <laughs> you just tempted fate now, Joe. No, I know. I, I shouldn't <laughs> have said that. We'd love to. See, I mean, I'm just going to multiplayer him. I'd love to see it. Oh, yeah. Gonna multiplayer yeah. Golden and gun. Yeah, that, that'd yeah. be brilliant. So uh, you definitely keep an eye on that progress. Now, Jerry Ellsworth, of course. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. So Jerry Ellsworth is a really amazing engineer. She did the Commodore 1 years ago, which was Little a handheld. F- full recreation of the Commodore 64. Then she made a thing called the Commodore DTV, which was like a handheld one. Well, We need to get Jerry on the show. Oh, point. yeah, I've, I've asked many times, Jerry, please come on. She was involved with a project called Cast AR. Now, okay. this is pretty cool. It was a tabletop gaming interface that you kind of used holographic glasses and, you know, your characters would come to life. You'd have this wand. So this is actual reality, AR. AR, yeah. yeah. So you'd be playing tabletop games and you'd be able to do that. Now that project kind of got, Steam got involved and it all just kind of collapsed. So she started a new project and uh, it looks like the technology from Cast AR has come into this new Kickstarter cool. campaign. And this Kickstarter campaign has raised 940000 as we speak. That's nuts, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. $560,000 on the first day. On day one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. That is a lot of confidence. Which is absolutely crazy. And you know, Jerry, she's an absolutely amazing engineer. And I, from what I saw with the Cast AR stuff, that looked really close. Yeah. Close to what it was. So I'm really glad that this is kind of coming out. And it's, you know, over a million dollars now. And uh, it's painted as well, which is absolutely fantastic. And... It's basically the angle of field of view, uh, which is 110 degrees. Okay. Which so kind of creates this, yeah, yeah, which yeah. creates this nice plaything, and especially where you're sat at a board. And I know Joe's been playing a lot of um, tabletop gaming recently. What What do you think if it was a kind of holographic and all your Guys came alive. I feel and... like I feel like I'm in Star Wars. <laughs> if you, if you did looked that. over and, and Ravi was a wizard, <laughs> oh, I'd love that. Well, that's what I see anyway when I see Ravi. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> but yeah, no, that would be pretty pretty awesome if you if that was to come to light. So, yeah. I mean, AR really interests me because I mean, we, you know, we've all played virtual reality. Mm. AR, I mean, the only real experience of that is via mobile. Obviously, stuff like the Pokemon game, yeah, where you're putting like video game elements into the real world, yeah. But I think that's got to be kind of the next thing. I mean, cause it kind of takes VR into, especially when you've got stuff like you know these VR headsets like the Quest mm. and stuff that you don't need all these wires and everything on. All they need to do is, you know, this could be a great example of that. Something that you can take outdoors and walk around, transform the real world around you, but you're not going to walk into a tree because you can also see the real world. And it yeah. could be a total new genre, yeah. like a new level of tabletop gaming with 
video game kind of added on, you know. Really well, this crazy. is kind of what we, we were all excited about a decade ago with Google Glass. That obviously, no one ever wore it, never really got out there. It was more well, a concept thing. What, what if you're like a tabletop gamer that can never get his mates around? And yeah. And you put your AR glasses on, <laughs> match oh, with some word, people yeah. online, and then yeah. you're, you're playing a huge, yeah. So your mates can be virtually in the room with you. Yeah, yeah. Never have to go out again. That sounds brilliant. So, Jerry, we wish you luck with that. I mean, you know, we've always really admired Jerry's skills as an engineer, so it's great that things are working out. We'll keep an eye on that. Now, before we get into our chat this week, all about those home arcade ports with David L. Craddock, let's talk about something else about the Commodore 64. You touched on Jerry's old remake there. Metal Warrior for the Commodore yes, 64. so this is a great company. If you haven't heard of them, uh, Cytronic, and they, they yeah. release a lot of new titles, and uh, they're, they're, they're kind of boxed Commodore 64 games really done well but they've never ever had them together as one in this kind of uh complete package like a compilation essentially this is the quadrilogy this is all four this is the quadrilogy sorry uh age of heroes was another title but interestingly that's compatible with the c64 mini which is cool so now they're releasing titles that are compatible with the commodore 64 and c64 mini well these are basically the kind of run and run along 2d kind of shooting games you know Kind yeah. of reminds me, you know, those games are really popular on the 64, and these, you know, have been later games as well. And Cytronic, I mean, they often do titles that kind of push the limits of what those old systems Yeah, and do. this is going to be a special collector's edition, so yeah. it's a quadrilogy, so it's four of these titles in one, and, you know, that's never been released. You'll get it boxed, they're saying, for collecting. This yeah. is going to be a real gem. You know what, though? Because, I mean, they often release these games for, like, download and stuff, don't they? But there's yeah. just something about having them boxed. The, the way you bought the... Well, when you did buy a game as a kid, the way, <laughs> the way you got them when you didn't get a dodgy copy off your mate. But even, like, even if you can download them for free, I'll often want the original in a nice case. And there's something about the, the act of just opening a disc box or a cassette tape or, or a cartridge and that... The manual and the smell of it, even yeah. that all comes out. And, and the magazine smell from yeah. the instruction manual. It's been amazing <laughs> the kind of C sixty four games that have been coming out. You know, uh, there's been quite a lot. There was even the Farm Simulator yeah. C sixty four that came with the commercial Farm mm. Simulator. So it's just mad. Who'd have thought that twenty nineteen would be a huge year for Commodore sixty four development? <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to what twenty twenty might bring. So we'll put that story and everything else that we've talked about this week in our show notes at theretrohour.com. dot uh, com. Little reminder, by the way, if you do listen on uh, what is now. Apple Podcasts, because iTunes officially dead as of this week. It's, it's gone crazy. You sent me a little screenshot saying yeah. you'd search for podcasts and they were saying, get Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Update your Mac and like, iTunes gets deleted. It's gone now. It's crazy. Yeah, which is, you know. End of an era. It is, isn't it? But Goodbye, I- bloated iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone was really sad about that in the end, were they? Uh, but if you do listen on uh, Apple Podcasts, the chart is still there, what used to be the iTunes chart, and any review we get in there. Because, I mean, that is kind of, a lot of people say, well, don't listen on the iPhone or iTunes. That's fine. But if you're on there, I mean, that is kind of the official top 40 of podcasts, you yeah. could call it. So if you leave a little review or a little five-star rating in there, or on any platform as well, I mean, that really helps get the show in front of new people. So if let's do a little favour this week. A little review and a rating would be really appreciated. And right now, let's get into our chat with David Craddock, all about his incredible new book, Arcade Perfect, talking about how those classic arcade titles got brought to the living room. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest, a gentleman you may be familiar with because we actually had him on about a year ago talking about him first-person shooter games. Now we're going to be talking about those arcade ports that we played at home back in the day. Let's welcome on David Craddock. Welcome back to the Retro Hour. Thanks, guys. I can't believe it's been a year. I think a year in 2019 time feels more like eight or ten 
I know, it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, talking about the, the Rocket Jump book, the FPS book, just to kind of recap on that, the conversation that we did have last year, I mean, how, how did that go then? Did you get much reaction from the book? We got a reaction not quite the way we were expecting. The crowdfunding campaign kind of faltered, so I ended up canceling it and taking it in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I originally wrote and published Shack News as a, a long read, as we call them, on shacknews.com. And working with my my editor in chief and the CEO Asif Khan over there, we've released Rocket Jump as an ebook, and we'll be releasing a paperback soon. So you can still read that. You can read it for free on Shack News. You can get it on Kindle, and soon you'll be able to have a copy on your bookshelf as well. Ah, oh, fantastic! Well, I'll put a link in our show notes if people want to track that down. Perfect. So let's talk about the latest book then. Um, pretty long title on this one, but really good. Arcade <laughs> Perfect: How Pac-Man, Mortal Kombat, and other coin-up classics invaded the living room. So. Why did you decide to do a book on home arcade ports? Uh, Two reasons. The first was to see if I could master the art of writing a short subtitle, and I failed, so I guess I'll try again. Um, (laughs) But the second reason is uh, I grew up playing arcade ports and arcade games. You know, uh, my mom or dad, whomever I was with, would take me shopping, and when I was old enough, they they felt comfortable leaving me alone in the arcade, so I wasn't pestering them to go home while they were shopped for clothes and boring things like that. Uh, and they'd usually give me a couple bucks to, to blow on uh, Ninja Turtles or Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, what have you. And um, I was kind of at the forefront of kids subscribing to Nintendo Power and from there, GamePro and EGM. And I always loved to get uh, my first glimpse of arcade ports because I loved the arcade games, but naturally you only have so much access to those being that they're not in your house. So I wanted to see what systems I owned that ports of arcade games like Ninja Turtles and Street Fighter 2 would be available for. And uh, growing up, you know, I was also old enough to participate in the console wars, quote-unquote, right? I actually had a friend who had a Sega Genesis. I had a Super NES. Um, I suppose it's Mega Drive for you guys over yeah. there. And, uh, you know, we'd argue about, well, Mortal Kombat's better on the Mega Drive because it has blood. Well, Super NES has Street Fighter 2. But as I got older, I kind of grew out of that that tribal mentality and actually took more of an academic interest in arcade ports. I, I wondered, well, why why do the why does the same game for two different platforms look and sound and play differently? And uh, I'd always wanted to write a column called Arcade Perfect that just would take any of my favorite games and kind of break down the arcade version and compare and contrast it with home ports. And um, back in April of this year, just uh, six months ago, I decided, well, I have, I have enough interest in this and enough contacts. Uh, developer contacts to write a book and that's what i decided to do where were the arcades kind of based did you have an actual arcade that you went to because in england they were scattered all over the country in fish and chip shops in leisure (laughs) centers in really strange places that's something I, I found curious uh, and that I learned during this process. I actually did have a couple of local arcades. There were two malls I frequented. When I was at my mom's, there was a mall about 10 minutes away. And when I was at my dad's, there was a, a mall a good 15, 20 minutes away. And they both had dedicated arcades, just wall-to-wall, pinball games, video games, um, skee-ball, things of that nature. But I actually spoke with several developers from England and just outside of the States. And they kind of said the same thing you guys did where instead of arcades you'd find you'd find arcade games in pizza parlors pubs that sort of thing but yeah i did actually have a couple of dedicated arcades that i frequented and i had much less experience than a lot of folks with you know going into a restaurant and just happening to see a, a pac-man cabinet there for example 
Well, what were your go-to games then? What were the games that you made a beeline for when you went to the arcade? My favorite arcade game of all time uh, is still the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It yeah. was the it was the first four-player game I'd ever played. But what really blew my mind, and I couldn't articulate this then, but you know that game came out in '89, which was really at the height of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Teenage Mutant uh, Hero Turtles uh, <laughs> yeah. craze. And for 1989, for, you know, just for context, you still had games like Pac-Man. Centipede Missile Command kind of hanging around. The graphics were improving, but Ninja Turtles looked like the cartoon. The graphics were just astounding. They had digital voices. They had great soundtracks. It was. It really was the first time I kind of looked at a game and felt like I was playing a great representation of something I'd seen on TV or in the movies, and uh, it was just a lot of fun. From there... I kind of graduated from beat-em-ups uh, to one-on-one fighters. Uh, I was actually known in middle school and high school as Mortal because I loved Mortal Kombat. And the, the teachers would call me that, too. I'd hear, hey, Mortal, pass up your homework from my, <laughs> my algebra teacher. Uh, the funny Finish thing him. was Mortal, Mortal Kombat kind of led to my first writing job. My mom w- bought me the strategy guide for the first game. And I would take it to school and read it during class, of course, because nothing else important was going on, I guess. And uh, kids would ask me if I could borrow the guide. And I, I, w- I would let them, but sometimes, you know, they, they wouldn't handle it very properly. So I uh, one day I decided to go down to our school's Mac lab. I, I typed up all the, f- the special moves and fatalities, printed off like 20 copies and uh, sold them for a quarter apiece. So that was my first published work as a writer, I guess, was my own little text-based Mortal Kombat strategy guides. Well, when the kind of arcade ports started coming out, um, home arcade ports, do you think that a lot of systems lived off the reputation of the arcade port and when they actually delivered it, it wasn't that good, but they still got the sales because of the <laughs> reputation? Oh, I'm talking about Pac-Man and stuff like that. Sure, sure. Yeah, oh yeah. I would say arcade ports were critical um, through the 16 and 32-bit eras, but more, more so at first because, you know, really... Um, I don't have this statistic in front of me, but I would venture to say that Mario was the first video game mascot associated with a hardware platform. You know, Pac-Man was big before Mario, but Pac-Man was kind of disparate. He was he was here, there, and everywhere. He was in arcades, Ataris, computers. Um, so before you had, you know, before Nintendo fans could look at a new Nintendo platform and say, well, I'll definitely get this because I love Zelda and Mario Kart and Pokemon and what have you... Um, Really, new consoles were kind of judged by the quality of their arcade ports, and that's something I kind of track in Arcade Perfect. If you look at the table of contents, you'll notice that I tried to write in chronological order. I start with Atari's home version of Pong, which was a dedicated console. You know, it only played the one game. Um, and then kind of working my way through the Atari 2600, the NES, the the Game Boy, the Genesis, and so on from there, just so you can kind of track not only um, how much closer arcade ports got to their original source material, but uh, the importance of arcade ports, which I, I feel like they peaked around, I would say the 32-bit era. My, my go-to game... When someone asks me what's the the most arcade perfect port you can think of, it's probably Street Fighter Alpha on PlayStation, mm-hmm. um, which other than loading time was pretty much spot on. And then from there, if you look at Dreamcast, you know everybody loves Soul Calibur, but Soul Calibur was interesting because that game was not a port in the in the traditional or denotative sense of the word. 
uh, the company actually rebuilt that game from the ground up. It had better character models, more polygons, uh, more fluid animations, new game modes. It was really like Soul Calibur 1.5 almost. And uh, from there, arcade ports kind of became... Uh, less vital, I would say, because not only did we have uh, a flurry of other genres that wouldn't have been really enjoyable in arcades, such as, you know, 100-hour RPGs, but um, console hardware and PC hardware had finally lapped arcade hardware. There was just no way for it to compete with consoles, whereas it used to be uh, the complete opposite. You know, Pac-Man on Atari 2600 was an abstracted version of Pac-Man the arcade game because there was just no way an Atari 2600 could hope to replicate those graphics and, and sounds. I think you made an interesting point there about the hardware finally becoming capable. It did take a long time. I mean, recently we were looking at, um, we did a panel with Rare um, over in Norway and we're talking about Killer Instinct. And you know mm-hmm. that game, when it came out on the arcade, we were promised that that version was going to come out on the Nintendo 64 like a year later. And the same with Cruising USA, but then we got the home versions and they really didn't stand up to what they were really promised, did they? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you know, it's funny. I remember remember that advertisement, uh, advertising KI for the Ultra 64. Uh, And I never did really find out I think it was because the N64 was delayed. That must be why Killer Instinct went to Super Nintendo. But it was interesting because... You know, as a kid, I, I played that game. I think I was around 13 when it came out. And I didn't really think about how differently it looked and sounded because the the gameplay, which is arguably the most important element, seemed, it felt close enough, um, which was not something you could claim early on. But what, what fascinated me as I interviewed developers for Arcade Perfect was how they would approach conversions knowing that there was no way they could create this one-to-one recreation of arcade game. Uh, if you look at Space Invaders, again, on the 2600, uh, the developer, Rick Maurer, basically looked at it and said, well, I'm just going to add a bunch of different modes and configurations to kind of distract players from the fact that there's no way I could make this look as good as, as the coin-op game. What were the kind of stinkers? Were there any really bad ports? I, I would say... <laughs> The Crown Jewel um, is is either I'm sure there are worse games, but the ones that always come to my mind right away when I'm asked this question is either Pac-Man or Donkey Kong for the 2600. But what's interesting is um, public opinion has kind of softened toward toward both of those games, more so Pac-Man, um, in part because you know ever since retro gaming took off, maybe ten or so years ago, we've historians like like me and like uh, Jeremy Parrish and many others have taken the time to actually track down the developers of those ports and ask them, hey, we know this didn't exactly turn out according to plan, but what exactly happened? And that in turn, I think, has engendered more sympathy for what developers had to go through. I mean, if, if you read the chapters on Pac-Man and Donkey Kong in Arcade Perfect, you'll see that these guys had to leap through hoops on fire just to get you know, just to recreate a single screen from an arcade game. Um, but, but also the, the, the conditions they worked in were were not what you would expect. Pac-Man was this this mega, this blockbuster in arcades, but, you know, Atari uh, famously or infamously would not give Todd Fry um, a bigger ROM chip for the cartridge. They basically said, well, why would we spend more money doubling the size of the cartridge from 4K to 8K when people are going to buy this thing anyway? It was almost them saying the quality doesn't matter. If it says Pac-Man, they'll buy it. Who cares? And obviously that backfired. But um, I, I also wanted to take the time 
to to kind of learn as much about personal motivations for each of these developers as I could. For example, uh, Gary Kitchen, who ported Donkey Kong to the Atari 2600 for Coleco, he was very focused on the first stage because, you know, the first stage of Donkey Kong, the construction site with the tilted platforms is the most iconic. Um, But the Atari 2600 did not have any readily made graphics routines to draw platforms that alternated between sloping down to the left or right. You could duplicate one side of the screen to the other or mirror it, but you couldn't do things like have platforms that leaned in one direction in opposite directions. Um, and when he finally got that working, originally the platforms were flat, but uh, another publisher he met with said, no, they really should be slanted. When he finally got that working, he only had 4K to work with and the technique that he kind of hammered through took up so much space on the cartridge that he didn't have room for two of the arcade's four levels. So the game was kind of cut in half, and to his mind, players should be happy because, hey, the first level looks pretty darn close to the arcade version. I think we often forget, you know, the limitations that these developers were working with on that really primitive hardware. And, I mean, I remember, you know, you mentioned that about um, Pac-Man on the 2600. And Atari were marketing that, weren't they, as, you know, the first system that lets you play Pac-Man at home. And the game, like you said, it wasn't really representative of the arcade game. But then when Miss Pac-Man came along, that was actually a pretty faithful port. I mean, do you think they were kind of learning as they went along then? Oh, sure. I, th- I think we still see that to this day. Even, you know, the, the, the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One give developers a spoil of riches compared to the NES or the 2600. But one thing every console platform shares in common with every other platform is that when you first get this box, it is new. Um, if you look at each console, you tend to see the best games on that platform tend to come out uh, late into the development or to, to its life cycle. And the reason for that is developers have just had time to learn the hardware. So, you know, the same programmer who who did um, Pac, Miss Pac-Man for Atari 2600, that was not Todd Fry, that was someone else. Uh, but they certainly had time to look at Todd Fry's work and say, well, here's where I can improve. And, you know, Todd was pretty candid in telling me, I really didn't get the essence of Pac-Man. I figured that as long as I had the the Pac-Man, Four Ghosts, and a Maze, that that was the game. It was only later developers realized, you know what, for these arcade ports to sell well and review well, uh, we really need to closely analyze arcade games and kind of figure out what are the very the most important elements to to carry over and to, to get this to look and sound and play uh, as closely as possible. And I remember being a kid and we got Golden Axe on the Commodore 64. And I thought mm-hmm. that was a really good port, even though I think it was only one player. You couldn't have two players at once on it. <laughs> and, and then Outrun, I remember getting that on the Amiga and that was a bit of a stinker. I mean, have you kind of got any personal memories of home arcade ports that you played back in the day and, and what they were like? Probably my, my favorite is uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, the arcade game for NES. And the interesting thing there was, you know, they had to add the 2 and then the, the arcade game subtitle because Konami actually created a game called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for NES that was different from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade game. So they had to separate them somehow. But even then, the, ar- the arcade game was not so much a port as sort of um, an abstraction similar to what Todd Fry did. You know, the sprites were smaller, uh, the the character models for the turtles were all identical, whereas in the arcade games, even though they were the same model, they had different stances and held their weapons in different ways. That didn't make the jump to the NES, but the cool thing for me was 
all of the levels were there and they were twice as long, which meant more bang for my mom's buck, I guess. Uh, they added two new levels. They added some new bosses. So to me, it, it almost felt like not a brand new game, but different enough that I still got a lot of mileage out of it, even though I played the arcade game the second, uh, you know, every chance I could get. Uh, I do have a game that's kind of a stinker, and this is also an Amiga game, and I believe the Amiga port was carried over to DOS, and it was just as just as poor in quality, and that was Street Fighter 2. Yeah, that front uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if you played this, you know that it was weird because it only had two buttons, and to do, you know, there were six attacks, and to do a different um, attack you'd have to hold a direction and hit, say, the punch button. But it was also, <laughs> I don't know why this was, but the characters moved like they were fighting on the moon. Like they just kind of floated around and it was just, it was only nominally Street Fighter 2. It, it did not play well at all. The graphics were pretty impressive, but they didn't have as many frames of animation as possible. But, you know, I had I had a, a PC with DOS on it before I had a Super NES so I kind of convinced myself that the version was good enough for me to play because I didn't have a, a better alternative. I remember a friend of mine had a Super Nintendo. I showed him that on the Amiga and he laughed out loud. <laughs> the yeah. frame rate on it, yeah. I can never oh, get yeah. a Hadouken. You know? <laughs> um, so oh, yeah. How, how do you go about researching the book, though, making sure the sources are accurate and you know, you're know getting the correct information? That involves a lot of, of cross-referencing. Um, Wikipedia is a ready source, but of course, you know, you always need to double and triple check the citations. Um, usually what I would do, uh, my research started with what games do I really want to write about? And um, the only barrier, well, I had two barriers there. The first was I couldn't talk to Japanese developers because there was a language barrier. Um, the second was I have to be able to track down the developers of the games I can write about, which is difficult difficult because remember a lot of these arcade games especially the early ones um programmers m worked on these before the games industry was what it was today and so a lot of these folks didn't stick around and make careers in games they would do one or two arcade games and then kind of disappear um into other industries so they were they could be difficult to track down um what i would do is i would go to moby games i would think of a version of a game i wanted to talk about such as um uh, Mortal Kombat on Super Nintendo and Mega Drive, and I would look at the credits and I would just start reaching out. Uh, LinkedIn has been my my best source of making contacts, and I would basically say a note that says, "Hey, I'm I'm an author. I want to write this book on arcade ports. Could I talk to you about this game you worked on?" Um, and a lot of times, I I kind of hit two or three birds with one stone. Um, David Leitch was a programmer who worked on Space Invaders for Game Boy Color, Double Dragon for the ZX Spectrum and Mortal Kombat 2 for Mega Drive, and Terminator 2, the arcade game for for Game Gear, as well as several others that I didn't have a time or space in the book to write about. So I was able to talk to him about a lot of different games. Then, once I had the interview and I'd transcribe, I'd, I would go through line by line, and when they said something like, oh, the publisher couldn't release it because of this reason, or it was delayed because of that reason... I would just start digging and, and make sure that I could verify that if it was an element of the story that I thought was important to their narrative. So it was it was a lot of careful transcribing and reading and cross-referencing. Well, when I was researching for our conversation tonight, I mean, I was checking out a few articles that you've done over the last like year or so, and you did a really interesting article about porting NBA Jam to the PlayStation. Why was that such a monumental moment in home arcade ports? That was really interesting because, you know, the PlayStation 2, 
was uh, not the first 3D game console, but it was maybe the first popular one. And it was during a time when developers were saying, well, we got to go 3D because that's you know the obvious next step. Even though 3D graphics around that time were pretty ugly, a case in point, a lot of PlayStation games, even some of the best ones, have not aged particularly well. There, there's a reason. <laughs> I actually I wrote an article for Paste a magazine a couple of years ago about Final Fantasy VII's marketing campaign, which was hugely influential. And they, they, you know, to a person, every marketer I spoke with said there's a reason we only showed stills from the cinematics just because the game itself, no offense to the artist, but was kind of ugly. The polygon counts were so low that, you know, it was bound to be ugly. Um, NBA Jam was different because it was a 2D game that had been out for a few years. And that kind of meant that as long as the developer in charge of the port, and that was um, Chris Kirby, uh, could figure out how to, to learn and kind of wrangle the PlayStation hardware, there's really very little reason why he shouldn't be able to turn around an arcade-perfect port. Um, and he came close. He only came close because the screen resolution was a little different and it was his first time working with the PlayStation, but it's still pretty good. Um, and so that's kind of something else I wanted to talk about, how often older arcade games, uh, such as Miss Pac-Man, for example, can get new life on a newer hardware platform, such as the Atari Lynx, which was one port I wrote about how the Atari Lynx, despite it being a very niche handheld, actually had, uh, a, uh, I would say an arcade perfect port of Miss Pac-Man because the game was several years old and the hardware was more than capable of, of recreating it almost exactly. Double Dragon as well. I hear that was a very interesting story, kind of <laughs> porting that to the Sega Mega Drive. Yes. Um, so one thing I like to do in all of these these gaming history focused books or articles I write is uh, I like to use technology and games as a stage, but the actors, the people, are what I really care about because these are you know everyone has a story for why they got into games and and wh- how they approached a certain game a certain way. Their personalities went a long way in shaping games. And I tend to write about games from the 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s because development teams were still small enough that um, everyone did leave their own footprint on the game. You know, today, uh, you might have a game director, but he or she is still just one person on a team of maybe hundreds. Um, everyone kind of touches everything. So Double Dragon um, was ported to the Maggie Drive by Pete Andrew, and Pete's story was really interesting. Like a lot of kids um, from our generation, uh, Pete said, I want to make video games. And he actually had a teacher uh, literally laugh at him and say, that's not a real job. He wasn't trying to be discouraging. He just, as, as Pete kind of <laughs> said, he just didn't really have the imagination to dream that this might be a career. You know, just because he hasn't thought of it doesn't mean it's not a viable career. Um, so I wanted to chart Pete's path into to getting into the industry, to learning the Mega Drive, to porting Double Dragon. And uh, what fascinated me about that story is he was pretty upfront at admitting that the port didn't turn out as well as he would like. Um which frustrated him because, you know, Double Dragon was several years old by the time it came to the Mega Drive. So that's one of those cases where um, it could have been pretty close to Arcade Perfect, but it wasn't. There was some problem with collision detection and input. Um, But what I found to be the most important part of that story was he did accomplish his dream. He's still in the industry. Uh, The Double Dragon port was received well enough, more than well enough, by his superiors within the company that they they promoted him, gave him more responsibilities, and he's thriving. So I kind of saw a tale not just of Double Dragon, but of someone 
uh, working really hard to to realize a dream. I mean, you mentioned Sega in there as well when we were talking about the Mega Drive. Um, which kind of companies ruled the arcade back in the day for you then? Because I remember, you know, Sega always seemed like such a innovative company in the arcade. And I remember, you know, even like stuff like, we talked about time travel on our show the other week and the R360 <laughs> and stuff like that. But their arcade games, they're always like, you know, Virtua Fighter and things, they set the benchmark really, didn't they? And they've, they? they've still got an arcade yeah. division, haven't they? Even yeah. though they're not producing uh, consoles. That's right, that's right. I think Sega was very influential just objectively. Um, up until the Dreamcast, their last console, they they still designed it with arcade ports in mind because they had properties like Crazy Taxi and House of the Dead that they wanted to make sure that their hardware could accommodate. And I played a lot of their games as well. Probably my favorite of theirs from the heyday of Sega was Golden Axe. I, I did yeah. love that game, especially because there was just enough strategy in it to make it a more engaging than just walking from left to right and hitting everything. You know, you could, if you were really in a tough spot, you could cash in the magic bottles you picked up to do a somewhat weaker version. But if you save them, you do a more powerful spell. And I thought that was pretty cool as a kid. And I was really into fantasy. Uh, for me, though... Capcom and Konami were my go-tos. And I, I didn't really, you know, at that age, I wasn't old enough to seek out any company by name, except maybe Nintendo, because I loved my NES. But I, I realized, it's funny, uh, years later on IGN, um, at that point they had, you could create a user profile and also add, you could kind of catalog your library of games. And they would let you choose from titles, platforms, and they would tell you stats about your library. Like, here's the game you bought the most, and here are the publishers and developers that seem to be your favorites based on what you own. And Capcom was number one, Konami was number two. And that's because, you know, I had so many home ports of games like Contra, Street Fighter Two, etc. Um, Magic Sword, which is, um, I don't, I wouldn't say it's more obscure, but you don't hear it mentioned nearly as much as those other two. Um, by Capcom. So it was, uh, yeah, I think those were my go-tos in arcades. And then, uh, well, Street Fighter 2 especially, and then Midway later because, again, I was a, a big Mortal Kombat fan. Well, kind of mentioning Sega there, I remember one of the really innovative games was Silent Scope, and I think that genre of shooting games uh, has really kind of been lost recently. You know, we, we don't really see it on the new consoles, but there's still, like, new versions of House of the Dead coming out. There's There's still new kind of arcade ports of shooter games. Yeah, you know, Silent Scope and House of the Dead games like that were interesting because um, arcade ports both helped and hurt arcade manufacturers such as Midway and Sega. You know, on the one hand, Midway stood to make more money on home versions of games like Mortal Kombat because, you know, even though video games were more expensive than dropping a couple quarters into an arcade game. The appeal of buying Mortal Kombat for your system was, well, now I don't have to pay for it anymore. Now I just own it. But that meant they also had to keep up and put out new arcade games so that their revenue in that market didn't dry up. Um, and I think the appeal there was, what games can we make in the arcade that maybe can't be duplicated exactly at home? Uh, Super Silent Scope was always interesting for me because, you know, yeah, th there were light guns for consoles, but the idea of kind of leaning over that cabinet and squinting down the, the scope of that sniper rifle, that big plastic sniper rifle, was a really cool feeling. And that's something you really couldn't duplicate at home. Um, same thing with driving games. You know, unless you were willing to shell out a few hundred dollars to buy things like a steering wheel and pedals... Um, which, you know, really didn't get sophisticated until I would say the PS2 or PS3 slash Xbox 360 era. Um, 
you were still playing driving games like Crazy Taxi with a controller, and that was very different than uh, going to an arcade and sitting in a cab that kind of was made to reproduce a real cab and, you know, like a big rig trucker cab or a taxi cab. It just offered something that you couldn't get at home. Well, were there any notable arcade games that never made it to the home systems or ones that maybe were on the way there but then got cancelled? Uh, I can't think of any off my off the top of my head because if you look at a lot of the bigger names, they all did make the jump to varying degrees of quality. Um, I would say that there were probably the generation... Well, if, if you look at home consoles, with each cycle past the PlayStation, fewer and fewer arcade games made the jump, either because fewer arcade games were made as companies such as Midway pulled out of the arcades and focused more on, on home systems, or because there just wasn't enough interest in arcade ports anymore to to justify the cost of, of doing a port, which actually could be pretty costly. And the turnaround times for those were usually pretty intense. You'd have a few programmers and artists who had, you know, between three and six months to get this done. It just eventually behooved companies to put more time, energy, and resources into creating original games than it did to, to do ports anymore. Do you think the kind of idea of arcades has changed? I don't know what it's like in America, but we have a lot of these ticketed kind of systems now, rather <laughs> than uh, where you're winning, you're going for prizes rather than the actual kind of experience. Yeah, it, it's funny because I think that the ticket-based games have always been around, but now they're really shining because they don't have to compete with video games anymore. Uh, my problem with those has always been you need like 5,000 tickets to get a plastic spider ring or something. <laughs> yeah, true. I've just, I've never felt like the, the taking the time to invest in, in learning the skill of whack-a-mole or skee-ball or what have you was really worth the, the rewards. Um, I do think the arcade, the idea of arcades has changed in, in form, but not, not function necessarily. The function of arcades is still what can we offer users here that they can't get at home? And and really the answers to that have kind of shrunk shrank over the years because you can do almost anything at home now. Um, I think the one exception is VR. Unless you have a PlayStation VR, or unless you've invested enough in your PC to, you know, be able to run games for an Oculus Rift or a Vive. Uh, the way they're meant to be played, it's still something out of a lot of gamers' price range. And I actually, I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen more arcades based on virtual reality spring up. I think there'd be a lot of upkeep. You know, you'd have to make sure to keep the headsets clean. Um, but, you know, th I think the appeal is still there. I, I would certainly venture out to, there's still a couple of arcades in my area, but they're almost all gone the ones that are around are just the ticket-based games, which, again, don't really interest me. But if they had VR headsets there, as someone who really hasn't... I have a pretty good gaming PC, but not good enough for VR. I would check out more VR games if there were somewhere I could go to play for a buck or two and, and kind of get a taste of what it, they're like. It's, it's quite interesting, actually, because if you think about the arcades, the games came first and then got the home ports... And now the new systems, you're getting indie titles like Crossy Road and stuff, and then they're getting turned into these huge arcade things. So actually, it's like coming from the mobile phone into a right, huge right, right. run. It's like an opposite path, isn't it? Yeah, we're kind of uh, penduluming uh, in the opposite direction. I, I think if we can learn... If we want to, to kind of look to a source to suss out the future of arcades, I think Japan is still the best example because they have so many unique 
experiences there that you can only find in arcades. Um, a lot of them aren't even based in video games because I think a lot of publishers and manufacturers have realized there's really no use in, in bringing Street Fighter V to the arcade when they can play that on PS4. Let's create a unique experience from the ground up that really takes advantage of being out in public, possibly with a lot of friends. I think another one is uh, Dance Dance Revolution. Sure, there, there are home versions of that, but the cool thing about arcade games was... In many cases, to use a food metaphor, the sizzle could be more important than the steak. You know, Mortal Kombat was not an especially deep fighting game, but as a kid, as an 11, 12-year-old kid, uh, when I would pull off a fatality and have a group of people around me going, Oh, wow, I've never seen that. That's so cool. And patting you on the back. That's something you don't really get online. Uh, you know, someone sending GG after a game of StarCraft II or whatever, it's just not really the same thing <laughs> as that instant response of a bunch of people cheering for you. So arcades, um, I, I, I interviewed a former game pro editor, uh, Dan Amrich, who went by the name Dan Electra in the magazine about this. And he said, even when he had home versions of arcade games, they kind of let him practice and sharpen his skills so that when he went to play the same game in arcade, that was where he went to show off his skill and to kind of impress other people, as gamers like to do. Yeah, you're kind of putting on a show, really. I mean, I remember playing Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter. You'd wait your turn, you'd get closer and closer till it was your turn to have a go. And then, yeah, you'd probably have like 10, 20 kids around all watching your every move. Yeah, it was it was really, really exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, old enough to, to remember, you know, walking into an arcade, and you could always tell when there was a new game because there was just a group five or six, even 10 bodies deep around in our cabinet. You'd, you'd stand on your tippy toes to maybe get a look at the top and see, what is this? Is this a Mortal Kombat 2? Is this a new Street Fighter? It seemed after a while, fighting games are the ones that really kind of drew all those eyes, which is a big part of the reason why uh, fighting games as esports do well so well today. Well, recently, I don't know what it's like over there, but we've seen a bit of a revival in terms of like retro arcades popping up all around the country where, you know, you play like a flat fee on the door, you'll go in and then all the classic games will be there and they're pretty much, you know, free to play after you yeah. pay the entry fee. I mean, why, why do you think there's been a bit of a revival in retro arcades and why are they so fondly remembered by gamers of that generation? I think it's because, you know, as the demographic of, of gamers change, we, we used to be um, the average gamer was 18 to 35. Now I think it's around 18 to 49. And that means that a lot of kids who grew up playing Atari, NES, Commodore 64 and Amiga, DOS, um, we're very interested in the retro scene, which is, you know, really exploded. But that's a good and a bad thing. I think for a lot of people who don't really have the time or money to invest in collecting retro games, which can be really expensive, the idea of walking into a, a retro-themed arcade and paying five or ten bucks at the door to play any game you want for several hours is is pretty appealing. It's still it's still a social experience if you go with friends, and you know even though emulators, for example, are great, there's, it's still not an exact recreation of the experience of playing on that old hardware. Um, one of the interviews, the bonus interviews I included with Arcade Perfect was with a guy named Nick Paul, who's a local retro arcade owner in my area. Uh, when I was looking at this book, I wanted to find a couple of local arcade owners, hopefully the ones who, who ran the arcades that I frequented as a kid, but they had all closed or left. Uh, Nick Paul was someone I didn't know. He's around my age. I'm 37. And I actually went to his uh, arcade, which is just like 10 minutes away from my house, and talked with him about running a retro arcade, the rates he charges, the type of games people play. The funny thing is, he, he does get older gamers who like to kind of 
pick through his Atari 2600 games, but he he has everything through the Nintendo Switch in VR, and he says a lot of kids will come in uh, to play games like uh, Pokemon card games at tables or Fortnite. Um, and so you kind of have games um, from across the, the industry's history being played. Yeah, we kind of see it today when we do events, you know, often like dads will bring their like sons or daughters in and show them the games that they used to play. And I think maybe that's kind of the appeal that a lot of these games were designed for kids. So that's kind of stood the test of time as well, maybe. Sure. It's it's always fun to kind of try to pass on hobbies and interests. Um, I've been to QuakeCon the past few years to interview people for, for articles and books that I've written. Rocket Jumping, one of those. And I talked to one father who had brought his kids, and, and both of them were sitting on either side at their own gaming PCs playing Quake 2, which he said was one of his favorite first-person shooters as a kid. And you could tell he was having a really good time because you never know if your kids are going to be into the same things you are. It reminds me of that scene of Back to the Future 2 where Marty um, shoots a bunch of cowboys in, I can't remember the <laughs> the name of the game, but the kids who are watching say, you have to use your hands? That's a baby's toy. And uh, it's it's really cool, especially in this age, to see a lot of younger players interested in, in the classics because I, I think it's always important to know where you come from. And I'm lucky that a lot of people agree because if they didn't, I wouldn't be able to do this full time as I've been doing for the last uh, 12 years or so. Well, now that we've reached the kind of point that we have these systems that can fully do the arcade perfect games are they actually arcade perfect a lot of the ports that we're getting on current gen systems the funny thing is the answer is yes but also no um in in the in arcade perfect i dedicated two chapters to modern attempts to preserve arcade games one is uh arcade one up uh the other is um, Digital Eclipse's Street Fighter 30th Anniversary Anthology, which packs in 12 Street Fighter arcade games, everything up to Street Fighter 4. And I I spoke to the the emulation programmer, Daniel Filner, and he made a really interesting point. He said that, um, you know, because, for example, Street Fighter 2 came out in 1991, and there were a lot of licenses that Capcom didn't want to really bother renewing or have to pay for or chase down someone to get them to pay Capcom to use it. And so what he would have to do is he, for example, he went in and he had to, he didn't have access to the code. When you're writing an emulator, you don't actually need the game's code because you can go in and break things. And he he said he often didn't receive original code during these emulation projects anyway. So what he had to do was he went in and used a programming tool called Breakpoints, which is where when you get to a spot, you tell the program to just kind of jump over anything in between the next breakpoint, you're kind of bookending code. And he skipped over the um, FBI winners don't do drugs screen, which a lot of players our age will probably recognize from games like Street Fighter 2 and Ninja Turtles. And that was because Capcom said we just didn't want to bother with, you know, having to get the FBI to let us use the old logo or a new one. Um, there are other things. Uh, if you look in, in Chun-Li's uh, stage, the China market, in the on the left side of the screen, there's a booth with red crates that have white swishes going through them. That's the Coke symbol. And Capcom asked Daniel Filner, well, Digital Eclipse, who asked Daniel Filner, to go in and just change to take the symbols out because they didn't want to chase down Coke to get permission to use the logos again. There was also, mm-hmm. on Guile's Air Force stage, there's a spilled can of Coke on the ground. So Daniel, without the code, had to figure out a way to go in and paint over those tiles or paint new tiles and insert them. And he actually made the really interesting point was that my job really isn't preservation. When you look at it in terms of having to change these small things, I'm kind of 
corrupting the original games, but in ways so small that hopefully most people won't notice. So, you know, Street Fighter 30th Anniversary Anthology, yes, it is arcade perfect in terms of play, but if you look here and there, a lot of the graphics and, and sound bites and soundtracks, if it uses licensed music, might be different because, um, you know, there are modern concerns such as licensing to think about. Well, you see a lot of kind of arcade setups now where people have hyperspin or they have a, a multi arcade uh, main machine and you know they can load loads of different titles use different key combinations uh, do you have a system like this at all or do you have any arcade yourself um i don't i i wanted to build one but i i'm fortunate in that i've i've been so busy with uh book and and article deadlines that i really i barely have time to sit down and play games on my tv or my computer <laughs> and so i've kind of lost interest in i wouldn't say i've lost interest in building a cabinet just i don't have the time but i, I do have a friend who just recently um my wife is friends with his wife, so we went over there for dinner, and afterwards we went down to the basement and played on his on his main cabinet. And it's it's still a lot of fun. It's that really is the only way to get a truly arcade perfect experience if you know you have the right joystick layout. For example, uh, Street Fighter Two three by two button layout isn't Mortal Kombat's five spotted die layout, but um, you know, if you download a MAME ROM for an arcade game, you can be sure that is the actual arcade game. No, no pixels have been painted over. Um, you're, you're playing the genuine article. And that was always a dream, wasn't it, to have an arcade at home as a kid? I mean, you couldn't imagine that it would ever be a reality and, and that it would be so easy. Oh, I know. It's, it's so <laughs> funny. You have so many options today. You can build your own cabinet. You can order custom cabinets and just kind of supply the computer and the ROMs. Um, yeah, there, there's so many ways to, to accomplish that. It's pretty cool. Well, David, the book's called Arcade Perfect, How Pac-Man, Mortal Kombat, and Other Coin-Ops Invaded the Living Room. Um, book's available now. Um, you had a good reaction to it so far? I have. Um, the one thing I'm disappointed by, which is my own fault, is um, there have been a few... Uh, low star reviews because there are some some editing errors in the book and this was i was on a very tight deadline for this i decided to self-publish it i did everything except the cover uh myself i had a little bit of help with the editing but it was it was mostly me and i, I don't want to give you or any of your listeners the impression that it's just a, a pile of rubbish it's definitely not but there are a lot of those little things that i couldn't quite catch um but they're, they're mostly you know just small typos that i feel don't take away from the impact of the stories i mean the book was a bestseller you can read all sorts of excerpts about it i've had i got over a dozen endorsements from you know tom kalinsky the former president of sega of america john tobias co-creator mortal Kombat. Uh, that i'm very proud of i'm very proud of, of the writing and the storytelling in the book so i would say you know check out some of the excerpts you can you can order the book uh off of amazon or Learn more. Check out all the excerpts at arcadeperfectbook.com and kind of judge for yourself. But I'm, I'm very proud of it, and I think your listeners will really enjoy it. I know you never kind of rest on your laurels with your books. I mean, have you got anything <laughs> in the works that we're, we'll probably get next year then or anything happening? Yeah, yeah. Um, so through traditional publishing, I have another novel coming out uh, within the next year. So book three in a series called The Garden Chronicles. Uh, the, book, the title of the book will be The Twin Crowns. Um, Self-publishing, Stay Well and Listen 2 should be out within the next couple of months for Kindle. Uh, paperback version will follow, and of course that's the continuing saga of the uh, the making of Diablo 2 and the history of, of Blizzard North and Blizzard Entertainment. So uh, I, that one I successfully kickstarted last summer, 
um, and Kickstarter backers, backers will get their editions first. They should have the Kindle version within the next couple of weeks, and they'll get a month or so to read it before um, it releases to the general public. And I'm, I'm really proud of that one, too. I think people will enjoy it. Wonderful. David, it's always a pleasure catching up with you, and uh, hopefully we will again in the future. And, of course, I'll put a link in our show notes if people want to get a hold of a copy of Arcade Perfect. Um, everyone should go out and buy it. Hopefully it'll be in a few Christmas stockings as well. <laughs> I hope so. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. I always enjoy our conversation.